Well, all right, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well uh, today. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Billy, and I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here, uh, and that's a huge honor for me to get to serve in that capacity. Uh, if this is your first time, we want to say a special welcome uh, to you. Everything we do here at our church uh, is about connecting people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, you never have to wonder what our motivation is. That is our motivation. We want to see you connected to God, and we want to see you growing in your relationship with him. And so whether it's our music or, or uh, sermon or kids ministry or student ministry or small groups, whatever it is that you show up to, that's our heart and that's what we uh, want to accomplish as a church. And so uh, a couple of announcements before we dig into God's word this morning. The first is if you are a college student uh, in this room, maybe you're a college student that's enrolled at Bruton Park or East Georgia or uh, Georgia Southern, wherever that is, or maybe you are a high school student that take college classes online, whatever it is, if you consider yourself a college student, then we are actually launching a ministry for you guys called Connection College, and uh, we had an interest meeting last week. Uh, we're also having a pool party cookout tonight uh, over at Mike and Amy Lane's house, and so we would love for you to be a part of that. Uh, we'd love for you to get plugged in uh, at such a crucial time in your life. And so if you're interested in that, uh, if you'll stop by the blue tent on, the, on your way out today, we'd love to get you more information, get you an address, uh, and get you there. And then secondly, as many of you guys know, last week was our 1-8 Project Giving Sunday. Uh, and so it was a, a day where I'd set a goal before our church uh, to get to a uh, million dollars as a church. We've been at this thing for now three years, and I put a goal before you of $50,000 that we could man, maybe we could hit it in one Sunday and just go ahead and, and go ahead and get the breaking ground idea started. And so uh, I put 50 grand before you guys and uh, you responded and uh, you responded well. And so together as a church last week, one Sunday, uh, the offering, the goal was 50,000. Uh, you guys gave $119,000 uh, to the 1-8 Project. So yeah, absolutely. When they, when they told me the number, um, I, I, it's not that I doubted you. I never doubted, but I was surprised. And I just think, as I think back, I, it's a day in our church history that I'll probably never forget. Um, what a testament to God's grace and God uh, being at work in us. And man, I'm super excited about taking this next step and building a permanent facility with you guys. Uh, the 1-8 Project uh, of course, will continue through November, and so the way, best way I know to think about it is uh, the more money we get up front to put down on the building, the less we have to finance over the long term, so the better off uh, that we're going to be. And so kind of what the process will look like from here on is uh, now we'll move into the construction document phase, kind of like building a house. You'll get uh, all the documents finalized. You'll work with the bank to get the loan finalized, and then we'll kind of uh, shooting to break ground. That usually takes a few months. Uh, shooting a break ground somewhere around November, maybe the 1st of December. So that's exciting. Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving and for sacrificing so that we could have our own uh, facility and plant churches and continue to reach people uh, with the gospel. If you want to pray with me, a couple things specifically you can pray for. One is that inflation would come down a little bit, uh, and, and you can pray for that. Our God can intervene. And then two, if you want to pray that steel prices would come down a little bit, that would be very helpful for us as a church as we build this church building together. So definitely pray with me for that. You got your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. 
if you've been here for a while, you know we've been working our way through uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians. Uh, this is Paul writing to one church, so I thought it would be cool for us to study uh, both First and Second Corinthians this year. And we started way back in January with First Corinthians. We finished through that, took a break in the summer, and now we're jumping into Second Corinthians. If you weren't here last week, it might be a good idea to go back and listen to the first sermon. I spent a lot of time on the front end really helping you understand the context of, of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians because as we dive into 2 Corinthians, you're gonna start to understand if you don't understand his relationship with them, then you really can't comprehend or understand what he's writing. And so I'll do my best to help you with that uh, today as well. And so 2 Corinthians chapter one, we'll start in verse 12 and it reads this way. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. And we have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. So immediately what we see happening is Paul is defending himself here, okay? So your question should be, well, why is he defending himself? Well you have to remember that Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is complicated. Uh, there is a big history here, right? He's been there two times already, and there's gonna be four letters that we uh, learn about as we go through this chapter. So Paul really spent a lot of time. If there was one church that would have made Paul pull his hair out, it was the Corinthian church. Just a lot of stuff going on. So uh, his history starts all the way back in Acts chapter 18. That's where Paul planted the church of Corinth, when he got there, he, he, he was kind of uh, receiving some opposition from the religious people there, uh, and so he was almost ready to shake his, shake his feet off, hey, I'm done with these people, they're crazy, I'm out, right? And then God came to him in a vision, and God said, hey, Paul, you stay here, you preach the gospel, and, uh, and there's many people in this city that I'm going to save, and so Paul stays there for a year and a half, many people come to faith in Christ, he was able to plant uh, the church in Corinth there, uh, and so it was a great experience. And then he ends up leaving and going to Ephesus, uh, which is right across the ocean. And so he goes right there. And when he gets to Ephesus, not long after that, he gets a report uh, that the Corinthian church is kind of uh, not doing well, right? So he uh, gets that report. He writes some letter back to them that he refers to in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we know that in that letter, he was rebuking them for sexual immorality in general, uh, and, and so, and there were some situations with specific individuals that he was addressing. Uh, he refers to that in his first letter. And then what happens is he sends that letter and they don't respond well to it, right? They don't really heed his warning or really receive his correction at all. So Paul decides, I need to go back to Corinth. So he jumps on a boat, goes back over to Corinth. He calls this his painful visit. Uh, when he gets there, he obviously uh, did not have a good visit there, hence the word painful. He gets there, he tries to help, correct, and get the church back in line with Christ. They don't receive it well. Not only that, somebody stands up against him, opposes him, and the church doesn't stand up for him either. And so again, you'll hear him talk a lot about this painful visit. So he ends up leaving, going back to Ephesus, uh, which is pretty good, pretty good ways across the ocean. He gets there ends up writing a letter back to them called the painful letter. We don't have this in our Bibles, but he refers to it multiple times. Well, I guess uh, when they get the painful letter, uh, it seems that they respond a little bit better to that letter, but at first it was not a good response uh, to them. And so anyway, as he continues to move on, he, he ends up writing the letter of 2 Corinthians, 
after he see, receives word that they have actually responded back to that letter. And so I know that's complicated, but that's why I tell you. If there was a relationship status between Paul and the Corinthian church on Facebook, it would say it is complicated, right? It is very complicated. There's a lot of history there. And so as we're about to see, some of these relational complications are gonna play out in the passage today. And so we gotta understand them. We gotta at least try. Apparently, some of the, Christ, some of the Christians in Corinth are questioning Paul's integrity, uh, because Paul had to change his plans about coming back to them. So Paul had a couple plans. When he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's plan A was originally he had promised that he was going to come and spend the winter with them uh, in Corinth if the Lord permitted him to do so. So think maybe a longer visit, get to spend more time with them, really begin to get to know them even better than he already did. But then after hearing how they responded to his first letter, he had to go as on an emergency visit. He calls this the painful visit from Ephesus back to Corinth to address the sinking ship situation going on in Corinth. And so because of that, and then he'll tell us a few other circumstances, he has to switch to a plan B. Well, what's plan B? Plan B was now, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, to make two visits to Corinth. Um, he was gonna make one on his way to Macedonia. All right, I don't have a map. I'm sorry, I'm gonna show y'all with my hands what the map is. So. If you think Corinth is over here and Ephesus is over here, you can switch. Let's say Corinth is here, Ephesus is here, right? And so they're kind of directly across from one another parallel there. And so what happens is Paul is in Ephesus, and so he just kind of swings right across the ocean to get to Ephesus, right? And so that was all pretty, and everything was dandy uh, for him to go. Well, Macedonia is kind of up north of Corinth, if that makes sense, right? And so his plan was to move from Ephesus to Corinth, on his way, stopped through Corinth to Macedonia, and then when he left Macedonia, swing right back through Corinth on the way. Visit him two times, really get to spend some time with the people. That was great until a riot broke out in Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 19, and he got kicked out of Ephesus. And then the Bible tells us Paul moved north of Ephesus up to Troas and then over to Macedonia. So it really didn't work well for him to, uh, to, to swing back down in, and so he ends up changing uh, from plan B. He scraps plan B, and uh, of course, this went over like a ton of bricks, um, and it didn't go over well with them, and apparently, they started accusing him even more. They were accusing him of following fe fleshly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. They questioned his motives and decision-making. Uh, they accused him of being careless with the will of God. Uh, they accused him with making plans to please himself instead of what was best for them. Essentially, the word on the street in Corinth about Paul was this. If Paul says or writes one thing, he really means another. His yes is no, and his no is yes. And so he had kind of lost a little bit of credibility with the people there, and honestly, it was over confusion. Because, I mean, the Corinthians, if they could just put themselves in the shoes of Paul and understand, like, they tried to kill him. He had to go up here. It didn't make sense for him to come back down where they tried to kill him and go back. So it didn't make a lot of sense there. And so there was just some confusion. And Warren Wearsby, who's a, a great commentator, talks about these misunderstandings that happen in the church, and I think it's important for us to understand this. He says, misunderstandings among God's people are often very difficult to untangle because one misunderstanding often leads to another misunderstanding. Once we start to question the integrity of others and, the, and distrust their words, the door then is open to all kinds of problems, and that's seemingly what's going on here. So here, what you see in the first couple verses of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 
or chapter 1, verse 12, is Paul's defending himself. And so what he's defending himself, he's saying, my conscience is clear before God. Conscience meaning uh, when I think back and think about why I did what I did and I pray about it, seek the Lord about it, I trust that I did what God wanted me to do in that situation. He says, everything I have done has been done with godly integrity and godly sincerity. I do not base what I do on worldly wisdom, but I base it on God's grace and on God's guidance. And then he goes into verse 13, and hopefully this will help you understand it even more. Verse 13, for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, that you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you, you see Paul's heart for the Corinthians. He, he has this vision of how their relationship should be and how it will be in heaven. There'll be unity. Uh, they'll be able to love one another. They'll all love God's truth and want to be obedient to God. But here on earth, for some reason, him and the Corinthians just can't get it together. They don't receive Paul's word. They don't like Paul. They listen to false teaching. There's just a lot of stuff going on. But you hear Paul's heart is he wants to be in a restored heavenly relationship with the Corinthians. And he'll say that over and over throughout the book. Verse 15, he says, because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. And I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? That's accusation number one. Fickle just means unreliable, or you didn't do, you're kind of wishy-washy. You're not doing what you, you want to do. Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes and yes and no and no? There's two accusations. One, uh, you're not listening to God. You're, you're making your plans based on your worldliness and then two, uh, we can't trust your word. You're not trustworthy. You say yes, but then you do no. So I don't know what to think, right? So they're accusing him, coming at him pretty hard. Verse 18, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, by Silas, by Timothy, those are just his ministry partners, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm preaching Christ. For me to say one thing and do another is the opposite of the message that I was preaching and the opposite of how you saw I lived my life when I was among you for one and a half years. And so don't think that I'm wishy-washy and fickle and like, who, like, that's just not who I am. Verse 21, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it. Paul's serious right here. That it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And so what he's saying, spare, that word should bring discipline to your mind, like spare the rod kind of is the idea. Paul didn't want to come back to Corinth and flex his apostle muscles on them again. I mean, he could. Like, he is literally an apostle, a guy that can write scripture, speaks in the authority of God, and he could come in and say, hey, God said this, and you guys are doing the opposite. You're terrible. What are you doing? Like, that's how he could. But Paul 
corrected them pretty hard the first time he was there. He didn't want to do that again. He wanted to have a relationship with them where they respected each other, where they loved each other, and they worked, each, or worked well together because he says this in 24, and this is an incredible verse, literally should be the life verse of every spiritual leader in the world. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. That's important to understand. Like Paul's heart is that he could work with the Corinthians for their joy because it is by faith that you stand firm. And so it's cool that Paul links the joy of the Corinthians with their right standing before God. Like when they're walking in obedience with God, when we, you, me, are walking in obedience to God, our joy is made complete. Like that's how God uses it because we're created by God for God. So it makes sense that when we're in right relationship with him, that we have joy in our heart. So here Paul is referring back to uh, this painful uh, letter. Actually, hold on. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that everything he did, he did it with their best in mind. He wants them to understand that it's not a visit from him that is going to make them stand firm. Only God through the power of the Spirit, can do that. So Paul wants them to understand that his motive is their joy. He truly wants them uh, to, to see them stand firm in their faith. Like, that's his heart. And every decision that Paul has made has been made with that in mind. But listen, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I come, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And so Paul sent that painful letter. It communicated how much he loved them. He showed up, and uh, as you can see, it didn't go well. And this painful visit really hurt Paul in a lot of ways. It really hurt uh, him. Paul loved, he loved the Corinthians deeply. You'll see that with his patience with them throughout these two letters. Uh, he went in on that painful visit expecting uh, for them to receive him like a spiritual father. He went in uh, expecting them to receive correction because he was their pastor. I mean, you're talking Paul was the one who led them to Christ, who planted the church in Corinth. And not to mention, he was an apostle of God, like an eyewitness of God himself. And he went in and he experienced the exact opposite. He, all, he, all he got was opposition and criticism. And we learned that there was one situation that hurt Paul very, very deeply. Apparently, there was a specific man in the church during that painful visit who publicly confronted Paul uh, with accusations that he had taken from the false teachers uh, in Corinth. They weren't true. They were false accusations and then no one in the church stood up for Paul publicly. Like they just kind of sat back and let these guys destroy Paul. So uh, nor did the church do anything to the guy who publicly uh, tried to correct Paul or tried to uh, criticize him. They didn't put him under discipline. They didn't talk to him, nothing. And so Paul was deeply grieved because he felt like there was a lack of loyalty. Like he felt like they should have been loyal to him and they thought they had a strong relationship, but now this other guy had come in and basically led them astray. So Paul ends up leaving Corinth after that painful visit, and he decided it was not in their best interest to come back and have another painful visit like the first one. Does that make sense? 
And so what happened from there, Paul chose to write a letter. This letter is known as the, the tearful letter or the painful letter. And so he chose to write this letter to pray for them and then give them some space to repent on their own so he didn't visit them on their way up. And apparently, when Paul got to Macedonia, Titus bounced up, who he'd left in Corinth, to Macedonia. They were together, and Titus gave him a report, and apparently, Paul's strategy worked. Like, the painful letter went in. The people ended up repenting. They ended up putting the other guy under church discipline and doing the right thing and being obedient to God, and it encouraged Paul. And so they, 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 it was important that they saw that. But now Paul's about to address that situation. Listen to verse five. If anyone has caused grief, then he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Well, who is the punishment? Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about this guy that they had put under church discipline uh, there. And so he calls it punishment. That's tough, ain't it? Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for this guy. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So Paul insists that the person that had caused harm, uh, not so much to him, but he says the whole church, like we know he made Paul mad, but he, he says, no, it was not just me, like he caused harm to the whole church because sin ultimately in the church doesn't just affect individuals, it hurts the whole church. Like this is how Paul views sin in the church. But Paul also shows us here that the Corinthians had finally exercised church discipline or punishment, as he says, against the person, and apparently the man had come to repentance. He had turned from his sinful ways, stopped falsely accusing Paul, and turned from his sin and turned back to God. Praise God, finally, the Corinthians did something right. Right? No. But now, when it was time to restore this guy, they addressed his sin, but they didn't restore him back into the church. They didn't go to him, a repentant brother, and comfort him and forgive him and reaffirm their love for him so that he wouldn't be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Apparently, they just kind of left him out there in his repentance and grief, and you know, apparently they weren't willing to go get him. So Paul makes a very important point here. Most of us uh, in this room uh, have probably never been taught about church discipline at all, and I'm aware of that. Uh, but it's an important piece of Scripture, and it's an important part of the church, and we need to understand exactly what God wants uh, to happen and how he wants it to happen when there is sin uh, in the church. And so most of us in the room have probably never heard this. And being honest, it's, it's quite honestly Churches don't like to talk about this because it, it, it can scare people away who are not serious about growing in their relationship uh, with God. But it's important because we, we know it's important because Jesus taught about it. Like if you look in Matthew chapter 18, that's kind of the biggest teaching we have on spiritual discipline in the Bible. And first, uh, Jesus taught us that it's important, uh, or Jesus taught us that unrepentant sin in the church is a big deal. So like as God's church, we need to understand that when we have sin among us, which 
this many people uh, as a part of our church, we know there's sin that all of us are wrestling with in our life. Uh, and so uh, when, when sin is a big deal in the church because it's destructive, like not only is it destructive in your life, like all sin leads to destruction, but it's destructive to those around you. And then ultimately it's destructive to the church because it hinders us as the church from, from showing Christ to the world. Because that's what sin does is it messes up God's design for our lives so that we can represent God to the world. And so Jesus starts there. But secondly, Jesus wants sin to be addressed in the church. Like he wants his church to be a place where we talk about sin. So if you're ever at a church and they don't talk about sin in sermons or in small group or whatever it is, that's not a good church. Like you don't need to go to that church because sin is the number one enemy of our lives as a Christian. And so we have to talk about it. We have to deal with it. And the church is designed to be a protective covering for you as a believer. God's designed it that way. God knows that all of us as Christians will go astray at some point in our lives. It may look different for you than it does for me. Like for some folks, when they go astray, they end up like drunk, naked, in a ditch, on cocaine, right? That's just where their sin goes. For others of us, when we go astray, we let off the gas in our relationship with God. We kind of be, uh, we, we start struggling with our wife because we become selfish, and then we just kind of grow distant and go play golf all the time. But there's no difference in this astray and this astray. Like both of them are away from God and not in right relationship with God. And so what Paul wants us to understand here and Jesus wants us to understand in Matthew 18 is that we need to address this sin in the lives of people. God wants all of us to have people in our lives that truly love us and will go after us when we go astray. And if you're in this room and you say, Billy, I don't need that, nor do I want that. I don't need anybody to know about my business. What I would tell you is that you are not serious about your relationship with God. Because God knows, and you can lie to yourself all day, but every person in this room, the Bible says, he who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in it. And so the quicker you start to realize that you will be fighting sin for the rest of your life as a Christian, the better off you're going to be in your walk with the Lord. You need people around you. So Jesus not only stops there, he teaches us specifically how he wants us to go about doing this thing of church discipline. A couple things. Number one, he says that we need to get the plank out of our own eye before we start addressing sin in other people's life. This is huge. This is a big deal, right? Basically, if you aren't humbly aware of your own sin and you're not serious about pursuing holiness in your own life, then that's your starting point. Like, that's your next step. You don't need to go about calling other people out. You need to deal with your own sin in your own life. He's not asking you to be perfect, but he is asking us to fight sin in our life. Because listen to me, a prideful person addressing sin in another person's life will always do more harm than it'll do help. Always. It is not one person saying, I'm up here, I'm perfect, and another person down here saying, you're terrible, you stink, God hates you. Like That's not how God wants sin addressed in the church. He wants sin addressed in a specific way, and he tells us that in Matthew 18. The first thing he tells us is that sin should be addressed first one-on-one, -on -one, right? And this is how 
It works in our small groups. This is what we have connect groups for, is so that you can do life with other people as you wrestle with sin and they wrestle with sin. You guys can partner together. And so if there's someone in my small group and I see them going astray, then the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go get them. Hey, man, let's go grab something to eat or hey, I need to talk to you for a minute. Hey, what's going on? I see this area of your life and it doesn't look like God's there. And I give them the same invitation into my life. Like, hey, if you see something in me, I wanna know, come talk to me. And God says, we go to that person one-on-one for the sake of, out of love for them and out of the sake of bringing them back. And he says, if that doesn't work and they don't turn from their sin then, then we go to them two-on-one or three-on-one. And so we say, all right, hey guys, we got a situation and hey, so-and-so has gone astray, we're going to get him. So we're loading up the boys and we're going after him, right? And that's the picture, like we're going to him, wherever he's at, if he's at, uh, you know, if he's at the bar, we're going to the bar, wherever we got to go. If he's at uh, adultery's house, we're going there. Whatever we got to do, we're going to get our boy, picking him up, putting him in the truck. Dude, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Like, you're running from God. You think this is gonna satisfy you, but it's gonna lead to destruction in your life. It's not if, it's when, And before you do that, we love you and we wanna help you, right? And the Bible says at that point, if they do not respond, then uh, the last resort is that you remove the person from the church family in hopes that they come back to repentance. And you say, Billy, good Lord, man, like that is harsh. I want you to listen to Paul's language. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, this was a guy that was, uh, was, was in sexual sin bad. He says, you need to turn him over to his sin for the destruction of his flesh. And so basically, let sin run its course in this life because it'll bring him to rock bottom, and when it brings him to rock bottom, our hope is that he'll be restored back to God and he'll know exactly who to come to when he's ready to get back uh, right with God. And so this is how the Bible talks about the church. And Paul gives us another crucial teaching here in this chapter on church discipline. Paul says it's crucial that the church forgive when a believer repents. And it's important to understand that a healthy church not only addresses sin, but also responds with love and forgiveness when a person repents and comes back to God. Because that's the goal. The goal of church discipline is always restoration. It's not to flex on a person spiritually like I'm better than you. It's not to embarrass the person or gossip or slander their name. It's not even, it's not to condemn them. There's no condemnation in Christ. The goal of church discipline is to see a brother or sister that we love dearly restored to God and restored back to their church family. And so instead of sitting back and watching a person destroy themselves in sin, and destroy people around them, God says, go after them. Like, this is the family of the church. This is what he's called us to do. And when we've done this correctly with the right heart, it is an incredibly beautiful thing. I mean, listen to James. James says it best, James 5, 19 through 20. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, then someone should bring that person back. Because remember this, whoever turns a sinner from their error of their way will save them from death and destruction and cover over a multitude of sins. Like This is what God designed the church to be, is a place where you can, can, can have people that love you and that want you to pursue Christ even when you don't want to pursue Christ. This is why it's such a big deal to become a heart and soul member of the church. Because when you do that, what you're saying is, Billy... 
I want to entrust my life to the leadership of this church because I'm serious about growing in my relationship with God. And at that point, you're saying, Billy, I want you to stand before God for the sake of shepherding my soul, and I want to follow in the leadership of you and the elders of this church. And that's something that we take very seriously here because I believe for every person that's heart and soul at this church, I will stand before God at some point and give account for your life. And so we've established our church in a way where we can shepherd every heart and soul member of our church. You have one, at least one person in your life that loves you and wants to walk beside you as you grow in your relationship with the Lord. And so that's important. So here's you say, all right, Billy, what in God's name are you gonna do with this passage, right? All right, so I'm gonna try to put it on the bottom shelf with you because it seems like Paul is just everywhere, right? You got all kinds of stuff going on here. But I do think there are some things that we can learn in this passage from Paul. And I think there's three things that I wanna talk about as we have a couple more minutes. The first is this gospel-centered leadership. The second is gospel-centered forgiveness. And then the third is the source of these things uh, in our life as a Christian. So number one is gospel-centered leadership. Uh, and when I say that, I understand that immediately some of you guys have checked out. But I want you to understand this. I realize every person in this room is not a pastor. And some of you guys aren't even a group leader. You're not even shepherding other people in your life. But here's the thing that I want you to understand. Every person in this room is leading somebody. You may not be a leader in the church, but you may be leading someone. Maybe you're a coach, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a boss, or maybe you're a business leader, a parent, an older brother, an older sister, whatever you are, to follow Jesus is to lead other people. You know, that's why Jesus is invitation was follow me and I will make you a fisher of men because he naturally as we follow Christ he wants us to lead other people and Paul wants us to understand the importance of displaying Christ in our relationship with other people we see it in this passage let's look at a few verses verse 12 Paul says now this is our boast our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity, and we have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. So Paul points us in our ambition to lead others well in a way that reflects God uh, to have a clear conscience. So what does it mean to have a clear conscience? Well, a clear conscience, think less of a voice in your head and more about critically self-evaluating all the decisions that you make as a person to make sure that they align with love for God and love for other people. And that's what Paul is saying is that in Romans 2.15, he says, my conscience either excuses me or accuses me. That makes sense? And so when he goes back and he kind of thinks through the decisions that he's made, very clearly, based on the word of God, this either accuses my actions as being wrong or excuses my actions as pleasing God. Now, here's the thing. Your conscience as a Christian when it's submitted to the word of God, is a very, very good thing. But here's the thing. Paul also talks about how our conscience can be defiled when it's not submitted to the word of God. And so we can self-justify things because we think it's right, we, it feels right, but it not be uh, aligned with the word of God. And so that's where we need to make sure that when we're critically evaluating ourselves, that we're evaluating based on the word of God. He also says godly integrity. Think of integrity as you're seeking to follow the Lord's will in everything that you do. That's what godly leaders do. Uh, godly sincerity. 
This is like your love for God is sincere, like you're, you're, you're genuine, you're leading out of a genuine relationship uh, with God. There's a realness about you that characterizes your life. And then he also says, not relying on worldly wisdom, but on God. Paul was led by the Spirit. He wasn't concerned with what the culture was saying about him or what even the Corinthians were saying about him. Like Paul's, the loudest voice in Paul's life was the voice of God. And if we want to lead others in a world like we live in, we have to allow God's voice to be the loudest voice in our life. Because if we start listening to everybody out there, the truth is just gonna get cloudy in our minds. But when we're focused on the Lord and he's the loudest voice in our life, it's very clear what we're supposed to do and the steps that we're supposed to take. And he points to these characteristics of a godly leader. So here's the question. Would people say that these are characteristics in your life? Would they say that you lead out of a clear conscience? Or would they say that you have godly integrity and sincerity? Would they say that you rely more on God than you do on worldly wisdom? Not only that, verse 24, Paul says this incredible statement. He says, not that we want to lord over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith that you stand firm. This is an amazing statement. Literally, my life verse in ministry is this verse. Paul says godly leadership is not about being someone's Lord or someone's Holy Spirit. Like, you understand that. Like, God is fully capable of being Lord of the world, God of the universe, and being the Holy Spirit in every person's life. It is not my job and it's not your job to try to be Christ in somebody's life. God can handle his own business when he wants to do it. Now, does he want to use us alongside of him? Absolutely, but we don't need to go around trying to be the Holy Spirit. That would fix some of our marriages right there, just that one statement, right? Um, so godly leadership is about working with others for their joy. Like, that's, that's the calling from God. If we want to be a a leader that helps people lead uh, and, and helps people uh, grow in their relationship with God, then the, the idea is that we partner with them, we work alongside of them for their joy. Well, you gotta ask, well, what is their joy? Where well, their joy comes when they're right with God, when they're walking in obedience to God. Psalm 1611, he says, you make known to me the path of life, David talking to God, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. You wanna lead somebody to joy? Get them to Jesus. Like, that's where joy is found, and he wants us to partner with one another. He wants us to help each other stand firm uh, and build our lives on Christ so that when the wind blows or the waves come, like Matthew 7 says, we're unshakable because we're established on the rock and we have people around us that are saying, hey, stay on the rock. Like, don't move. Like, God will sustain you. He's with you. And this is Paul's job description for pastors. It's his goal for every Christian relationship that we have. So the question is, do you have friends like this? Like, do you have friends that wanna see you walk with Jesus? Like, do you have friends that are fighting for your joy in prayer, in conversation, like around you, like they're worried about where you are with God. And if you don't, this is why it's so important to be a part of a connect group. Like you've got to find people around you that love you, that want to see you walk with God because we all need them. 
And then he ends in chapter two, verse four, and he says, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you, because ultimately the foundation of a good godly leader is love. It's always been love. We saw this in 1 Corinthians when Paul gave us his definition of love. He said love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. Always perseveres. It never fails. So does the way that you love others as a parent, as a boss, as an older brother, as a coach, as a teacher, does it reflect Christ? Like, does your leadership lead people toward joy in Christ, or does it lead them away from it? Because here's the reality that all of us have to deal with as a Christian. The only picture that most people in your life will ever see of Jesus is you. And that's how God's designed it. It's the Spirit of God at work in you portrays an accurate picture of Christ to the world. And that's what God wants in his church. So let's be a church full of godly people that love God, that want to lead people, that lead people in a way that reflects Jesus uh, and and reflects Jesus in how we lead them. Secondly, Paul talks about gospel-centered forgiveness. Uh, This is one of the greatest passages in the Bible when it comes to forgiveness. Verses five all the way through 11. I can't read them. I've already read them, but you can go back and and study. But but a couple things. One, C.S. Lewis, an incredible author, says this. We all agree that forgiveness is beautiful, and it's a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. And that's very true. You see, forgiving someone that has caused you harm is never easy but it's always worth it. And this, is, this one in particular is a very difficult situation. It's a difficult situation for Paul because of the harm that this man had caused Paul. It's a very difficult situation for the church because of the harm that this man had caused the church. But you see, this man had confessed and repented. And God had already forgiven him because he had confessed and repented. And so now the church needed to follow suit as God's ambassador to this man, because that's what he's designed it to do. This man was apparently experiencing loneliness and excessive sorrow because he was isolated from his church family. So Paul here is calling the church not only to forgive this guy in word, but to welcome him back into the family with the love of Christ. I want you to write this down. A church that doesn't forgive doesn't understand God's forgiveness of us. A church that doesn't forgive, doesn't understand, or rightly appreciate God's forgiveness of us. Because you see, forgiven people forgive people. Like that's what we do. We become like the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, to forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. The person who understands the depth in which God has forgiven them will be quick to show the same grace and forgiveness to others. You know, Paul here uses a word for forgive that's different than all throughout Scripture. The the normal word you see in the Greek for forgiveness in the Bible uh, brings the connotation of like releasing something. You're, You're releasing something bad that somebody has done to you. But the word here, uh, the emphasis is on giving. 
uh, you're being gracious to a person. You're, you're giving them a gift that they do not deserve. This is why forgiveness can be so hard because God is asking us to give someone something that many times we don't feel like they deserve. And it's easy to say in our hearts that they don't deserve forgiveness. You don't know what they've done, Billy. How am I supposed to forgive this person? But the reality of the gospel is this, that God forgave us in Christ, and we did not deserve that either. You see, forgiveness is a gift. It's, it's a gift God has given to us, and it's a gift that he wants us to give to others, especially those who are repentant in the church Paul says to forgive this man and to welcome him back. Like think of the picture of the prodigal son that we all know in the Bible where he had shamed his dad. He had asked for his inheritance early and he went out on wild living and he finally finished and he got, got to the end of it and he said, man, this isn't all that's cracked up to be. The Bible says he came to his senses and he turns around and he comes back home and what does his father do? Does he tell him how wrong he is? He hugs him. He says, man, I'm so glad you're home. So glad you're home. This is the imagery that we get here in Paul's words. Think prodigal son, welcome home. And Paul says this type of forgiveness will do some incredible things in the life of a church and in the life of a person. It will bring comfort to the man. It will display the love of God to the world. It pleases Christ. It's obedience for the church. It will thwart the plan of Satan. Think about that. Satan is trying to slip unforgiveness into the church to keep the church from reflecting Christ accurately. Most of us have never thought about that. You've never thought that Satan's attack on the church, on your life, is the bitterness and unforgiveness that you're holding on to. And Paul says, just let it go. Let it go. Give it to God. Ask God to help you see the person the way he sees the person. And that's what Paul is after. And then lastly, he teaches us about the source of all of this in our life. Paul says, now it is God who makes us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal on us. He put his spirit in our hearts and is guaranteeing what is to come. So what is it that enables us to stand firm? What is it that enables us to forgive when we feel like we can't, to love, to lead, to save to, to, to grow in our relationship with God, to sustain us, to guarantee our inheritance of glorification. It's not what, but who. It's God who makes us stand firm. It's the Spirit of God in us, our ultimate helper, God himself, placing himself inside you and I as a Christian that anoints us, that seals us, that guarantees his work in our life. I mean, it doesn't take long studying the Bible to understand that the Spirit of God is necessary for everything that God will ask you to do in your life. Everything. Because apart from the Spirit of God, you and I will live for ourselves always. And the only good that exists in us, the only desires we have to do what's right for God is what the Spirit brings. This is why the Bible calls the Spirit our comforter, our counselor, our God, our helper, our life changer, our desire changer, our desire to follow God, our healer, all of these things come through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the question 
really boils down today to this is, is that spirit of God in you? And if you're not a Christian in this room, it's not. And the starting block of Christianity is surrender and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me. And if we're a Christian in this room, the posture of our lives is surrender because in order for the Spirit of God to lead us, we have to get out of the way. It's basically what the Bible means when it says to crucify our flesh. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me through his Spirit. But the posture of all of our lives has to be surrender. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You say, Billy, I don't know. I know I want to live for God. I've been trying to do it on my own, but today... I'm ready to surrender. Or maybe you're in this room, you're a Christian, you've been running from God. You say, Billy, I don't know what my next step is. It's surrender. Like it's always our next step as a Christian to lay down in front of God and say, Lord, here I am. I can't do it. I need you to do it in me. So let's pray. Father, that's our prayer today. God, I pray for the person in this room today, Lord, that's lost, that doesn't have a relationship with you. God, I pray today would be the day that they surrender their life to you And God, you'd begin a work in their life that would bring glory to you. God, that would change them forever. Lord, I pray that they'd see that we're a church that wants to surround them and walk with them. Lord, I pray for the person in the room right now that's, that's away from God. They're a Christian, but maybe they've strayed. That today you'd draw them to repentance. And today would be a day that you'd fill them with your spirit God, you would use them to do incredible things for your kingdom. That's our prayer. Father, would you make us a church that shows you to this world? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing?